Hello, I'm Nicole. Sorry for my voice, I've got a bit of a cold. So we're reading Romans chapter 2, verse 17 to 29. And it's on your sheet. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Thanks, Nicole. Um, you may find it helpful to follow the outline that is uh, on the other side of the handout the problem with religious people. We hope to have time for questions at the end, so if uh, what is said provokes you to think and ask, um, please uh, remember them and uh, come back. Last year, um, my doctor sent me for an MRI scan. don't know if you've had one of those. They're a bit weird and, and uh, freaky. Uh, but the uh, appointment with the doctor after that was even more freaky. I walked in and he said, Tim, you've got cancer. I said, how bad is it? He said, it'll probably kill you. Now, <laughs> I had quite a few ongoing discussions with that doctor, as you can imagine, uh, with a diagnosis like that. And I remember a bit later I asked him, had, do you find it hard to say to people you got cancer and you're dying. He said, yeah, I actually do find it quite hard, but it's really the only way forward, isn't it? And I could just ask them, how are you feeling? And if they say, okay, I can say, terrific, go home, you'll be all right. But that's, that's a fool's paradise. If they're actually sick, that's no help at all. He said, in your case, it was a little bit easier because I knew I had a solution. So to tell you that you had cancer and were dying of cancer wasn't quite so difficult. Me, today I feel a little bit like my doctor. That is, I'm bringing you a diagnosis of the human predicament. And it's not a very pretty one. It's like saying, you've got cancer, you're going to die. And I'm tempted to say, oh no, you're okay. I mean, you look fine, some of you look happy, some look bored, but basically you look okay. So things must be okay, just go home and you'll be right. But I'm convinced that that is the wrong diagnosis. And unless we actually face the real diagnosis, the diagnosis that God gives in his word, 
and that actually resonates with our experience of life. It, well, it's just like putting a Band-Aid on my cancer and saying, go home, you'll be OK. And here's the Bible's diagnosis. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, you've met this already. It comes in the first chapter of this book of Romans, written by an early Christian leader, Paul, to Christians in the, the capital of the world, Rome, the intellectual and political powerhouse of that world. And he says this about humanity. The wrath of God against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth in their wickedness. Do you hear the diagnosis? The diagnosis is people are inherently wicked. That's just another word for evil. And our evil especially comes out, the real disease is that we suppress the truth about God. That has all sorts of symptoms, but that's the core disease. That is, we don't want God to be God. We'd prefer to be God ourselves in our life. We'd prefer to decide for ourselves how to live rather than have some God off in heaven somewhere telling me how to live. And I know that disease because it was me. For a number of years, that's, uh, that's how I lived. I, I knew God was real. I never doubted that. But I just suppressed it. I just pretended that God wasn't a factor in my life because I just wanted to do my thing. Have you ever done that? that that's just human, isn't it? I created a sort of fantasy world, a make-believe world, where God wasn't there. I believed he was. I just pretended. I acted as if God didn't have a part to play in the world or my life. There's a diagnosis. What's the prognosis? Well, God's response to our behaviour is that he holds us accountable. He treats us as real people who make our own decisions about life and are responsible for our decisions. And as responsible people, we're facing his judgement, his good and righteous anger. But you might say, Tim, where's the evidence of this? Well, Paul goes on to give some evidence. He says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made. As we look at the world around us, we say, where did this come from? Must have come from somewhere. We look at our own bodies, we look at trees, we say, this looks like it's been designed, and intuitively we know there's a creator. It's interesting, I, I asked lots of people around UWA students, do you believe in God? And most people actually say, yeah, I think there's some, there must be something there. I think there probably is a God. Well, what do we do with that hunch? Do we pursue it? Do we say, well, if there's a God, I really want to know that God. If I'm designed, I look at my hands, I look at my brain, uh, surely <laughs> I'd thank him. I'd praise him for what he's done. But no, it's not what we do, is it? We suppress that truth. We want to push it down so it doesn't interfere in our life. You say, Tim, that, that, that's a bit tough. Well, let me give you an illustration. This, this comes from a guy called Pascal. Pascal, you might know, is a great mathematician and philosopher, French. He's also a Christian. This is called Pascal's Wager. Imagine a two-horse race. Imagine you're a betting person. Anybody here a betting person? It's all right, don't have to own up to it. Imagine you're a betting person and you find out that in this two-horse race, if you bet on one of the horses and it wins, you win everything. If it loses, you lose nothing. And the other horse, if you bet on it, if it wins, you win nothing. If it loses, you lose everything. Now, can you see the parallel with some sort of belief in God? Now, if you're a neutral person, which horse would you bet on? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? 
like the, the, the silliest person in this university can work out which horse to bet on. Then why, said Pascal, do almost all of us bet on the other horse when it comes to God? What it shows is we're not neutral. What it shows is that we do suppress the truth about God because it's inconvenient. It will change my life and I don't want it to change my life. I think his diagnosis is actually spot on. What, I, what happens when you suppress the truth? What happens when you create a make-believe world? Well, this is what the Bible says. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. One of the atheist quips about religion is God created humans in his image and we've, uh, comp- we've uh, re- uh, done the complementary thing. That is, we've created God in our image. And actually... You see, he's saying that's right. That's actually what most religions are. The foolishness of worshipping not the true God, but something that replaces the idolatry of the ancient world was like that. The spiritualism of our modern world is like that. What is religion? Religion's actually quite a hard thing to define. Go online, you try and look for definitions of religion, and almost everybody says pretty hard to define. Is it belief in a greater power? Is it your lifestyle, a worldview? How wide do you make it? Well, I've got a very simplistic view of most religions, I think. The structure of religion is quite easy to work out. It looks a bit like this. What is religion? Well, religion is when you believe there is something out there, whether it's karma or God or lots of gods or spiritual powers. And religion is when you try to do things right by them so they give you what you want. I think that's the way most people think about religion and understand religion. It's a means to get what I want. It's transactional in that sense. Do you notice what the Bible's saying about most religions? They're not people seeking after God. They're ways of avoiding the true God. They're not actually much different to atheists and apatheists. I don't know how you respond to that diagnosis. I think some of us will say, well, I'm just not that wicked, am I? I'm not, I'm not that evil. I'm not rampagingly violent and corrupt. But last week, Ben took us through the next little bit of Romans in chapter 2 about moral people. As you look around the world, yeah, most of us are moral. Most of us see what's happening in Syria with IS. We look at what's happening in Afghanistan. We look at what's happening in domestic violence in people's homes. And we say they shouldn't do it. Someone should do something about it. And you see what's happening. As I point a finger at them, I'm pointing three fingers back at me because I do the same things. Maybe not as obvious, maybe not as violent, but I still do them. I'm self-condemned. And how does God evaluate us? This is precisely what it says. God will repay each person according to what they've done. And that's exactly what you want, isn't it? You want there to be a level playing field. You're not judged on who you know. You're not judged on the level of your education. You're judged by what you do. Surely that is the only fair, just and right way to judge human beings, for us to be accountable for our lives. And God says that's exactly what he will do. But then he turns in chapter 2, verse 17, the passage that uh, Nicole read for us, to religious people. In particular, the Jewish religion. He calls on those who are Jews. You, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, that, those sort of religious people. And Paul knew that religion from the inside because that's who he was. And many people think religion 
maybe is the solution to the human problem. Can religion save us? Can it solve our problem? Well, I think if you ask people on the street in Australia at the moment, we'd be pretty divided on that question, wouldn't we? Most people would say, no, religion is actually the problem. Come to somebody like Christopher Hitchens. God is not great. Religion poisons everything. A book that was an international bestseller, still selling after his death. Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. Religion is just blind, stupid faith. People who are brainwashed since they were were kids. It contradicts science, and of course science is the only valid source of knowledge, isn't it? It's arrogant because it tells everyone else how they should live. Just this last week, Andrew Denton lectured Christians saying, you shouldn't enter the debate about euthanasia. You shouldn't be telling us how, how to live and what's right and wrong. Religion is the cause of wars and social tensions, of terrorism and violence, of radicalising people. And interestingly, the Bible recognises the truth of some of those things. It agrees with much of that, which may surprise you. But the vast majority of humanity who live on this planet think that religion is the solution to the human predicament. That's what Islam says, doesn't it? Islam says, listen, the root problem is ignorance. We don't know the truth about God. There is only one God and and Muhammad is his prophet. And so you dishonour Allah unless you believe what Muhammad says about Allah. He will drive out ignorance. And if you submit to that one God, we will get a life of law and order, of knowledge. And if we put effort in, we can create a peaceful life and life after death as well. And the five pillars of Islam seek to do that and impose it on people. Buddhism. Buddhism says the root problem is desire. That's its diagnosis. Desire is the cause of our pain and suffering, of tension and war, of pride and and, and fear. And so what we need to do is disengage, try and eradicate our desires, untangle ourselves from them. And the five precepts of Buddhism are ways of doing that. Enlightenment is, is central to it so that we live lives of harmony and peace and reach the state of nirvana. You see, they both have a diagnosis and they offer a solution. So we need to think a little bit more about religion. But before we get to some specifics, there's an increasingly popular perception about religion that I think we can't avoid. That is, this question of, aren't all religions the same? Theoretically, it's called religious pluralism. Everyone's right. There's just different paths to the same God and people in Buddhism and Islam and Christianity just find their different path. But it's the same God, it's the same goal. It's often uh, um, described in terms of this elephant analogy. Are you familiar with this? So imagine a group of blind people, because we are blind, aren't we? We don't, we don't know all the truth. And imagine they're asked to go and, and work out what this thing in front of them is and they sort of creep forward and and, and feel it and one of them feels the trunk and said this must be a spear another one feels the leg and puts his arms around this huge solid leg and says must be a tree another one touches the ear flaps it around says, oh it's a fan someone grabs the trunk and it's sort of flexible and a bit bit dangerous and they say it's a snake another one pushes up against the side and it won't move at all he says this is just a big wall have you heard that? And I guess the, the analogy is that like blind men, no religion has the truth. Rather, all religions are sort of true in their own way. They, they describe their own personal experience and spiritual reality that they encounter. 
given their cultural backgrounds and stuff, but it's actually an elephant. It's not a spear. It's not a, a, a tree. Have you ever heard that? And at first it seems quite appealing, doesn't it? But think about it a little bit. Is, is it persuasive? Well, the persuasion comes from the assumption that all of us have a limited perspective and experience. We've all got limited information. That's right, isn't it? I don't know exactly the same. I haven't experienced the same thing as somebody who grows up in India. But is it persuasive? Well, no, actually. It's very unpersuasive. Lots of reasons why. I'll give you two. The first is, just empirically, religions contradict each other. Now, here you've got an elephant. An elephant has different aspects, and the fact that one part feels like a sphere and another part like a tree, they're not mutually exclusive in terms of what the whole thing is. But if you look at different religions, they actually say contradictory things. They exclude things that others affirm. It's not hard to see. Just for example, Christianity says that Jesus died and rose again. Islam says he never died. Now, I don't know about you, but I think those contradict each other. You can't just say they believe the same thing. And they're not incidental to those religions. They're central to those religions. But there's a worse problem with that. You see... Who is it who says it's an elephant? Who is it who's escaped the, the, the finitude of humanity, the limitation of their own cultural background, so they can see the whole truth? Well, it's the, it's the religious pluralist who's claiming that position, isn't he? He's saying, I know the truth. You've got limited perspective. All you people who are involved in religions, you don't know much. You only know a little bit, but I know it all. I see the whole picture. And I can tell you you're wrong. Now, that's just as arrogant as the person who's a Muslim saying, no, I've got truth and you're wrong. They're both in the same situation, aren't they? The assumption of the, of the analogy is that all of us are blind people groping for reality. And then the religious pluralist says, except for me, I'm not. I can see the whole truth. Rubbish. You've contradicted your own assumption. It falls apart in your hands. Now, religions aren't the same, and the diagnosis of different religions is considerably different. And so the solutions are considerably different as well. And the solution can only be as good as the diagnosis. In Romans chapter 2, Paul addresses what he considers to be the best religion that he knows. The religion he was born into, raised in. The religion he chose and embraced. He educated himself in it. In our terms, he did both his undergraduate, his master's and his doctorate in Judaism and came top of his class. He knows it from the inside out. And so it's an ideal test case of religion. Is religion a solution? So we pick it up in verse 17. Now, you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve what's superior, of course, you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law and the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Do you hear what he's saying? That's what all religions do, isn't it? They say, I've got the truth and I'm going to tell you about it. And you actually get the impression that Paul's describing how he felt about being a Jew and his religion. Now, will this religion solve the human problem? Does it have the truth and knowledge of the truth? Well, Paul's actually saying, yes, it does. Unlike many other religions, it does know the true God. 
Will it solve the human predicament, though? And his answer is a resounding no. Verse 21, you then who teach others, don't you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? And the obvious answer is yes, yes, you do, don't you? Whether it's software or something else. You who say that people shouldn't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? Yes, yes and yes. See, every religious person tells other people what they should and shouldn't do. And they do the same things themselves. They say, we've got light, we can instruct you. But they do what they're not supposed to do. What they know they're not supposed to do. Verse 24. It is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Sort of summarises 1,500 years of Jewish history. God did an amazing thing. He chose the Jewish nation. He, he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, gave them a land of their own. He did everything to make it possible and probable that they would be loyal to him, that they would know him and obey him. And what did they do? From beginning to end, they disobeyed him. From top to bottom, they disobeyed him. The name of God was blasphemed across the whole world because of their behaviour. And it's still happening, isn't it? Religious people keep being exposed as pedophiles, as corrupt. All religions admit that they don't live up to what they preach. But they basically just say, try harder. And in verse 25, he turns to circumcision, which was the great um, uh, identity marker of being a Jew. If you don't know what circumcision is, I won't describe it in detail. It basically involves, for men, cutting off the foreskin of the penis. Slightly uncomfortable, uh, but when you're naked, everyone can see whether it's, it's there or not. But Paul says in verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, well, you really become one as though you had not been circumcised. That is, religious ceremony has no value if you don't live up to the law. If you don't keep it, it's just an outward sign like baptism or a, a dot on your forehead or saffron robes. It, it doesn't actually solve anything to have the outward signs. So what's the advantage of being a Jew? Well, he goes on in chapter 3 to say, well, there is an advantage. You, you, you know the truth about God, you know the law, but if you don't keep it, in the end, it's no real advantage. It's sort of like having the road rules. Now, you might look up all the road rules on the net. You, you might download them, learn them off by heart, and, and have them. Is that any advantage to you? Well, it sort of should be, shouldn't you? It means you should be able to drive around our roads pretty safely. But if you don't keep the road rules, it's no advantage whatsoever, is it? If you disregard them, it's, it's like you didn't have them. It doesn't bring you any ultimate and real advantage. It just exposes you even more starkly as a road rager. So his summary begins in chapter 3, verse 9. If you've got a Bible, you might like to follow it. I, sorry, I haven't got it on the screen. What then shall we conclude? Do we have any advantage? That is, we Jews, not at all. For we've made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, all under the power of sin. Jew, Gentile, whatever religion you are, religious or atheist, devout and sincere or couldn't care less, moral or amoral, the, the, the freedom party boy, or the uptight goody-goody. All of us, he says, are under sin. He goes on to say, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. See, there's the core thing. No one seeks God. We've turned away from him. In that sense, everything we do is against God, rather than righteous and with and under God. We suppress the truth. 
That's how I want it to be. Because I want to live life my way. And the way I want to live is fairly mixed, isn't it? Some of it's, some of it's quite good. Because uh, I want people to like me and all sorts of other reasons. But it includes that sort of self-gratification where I use other people for my own pleasure. It, it, it includes for wanting to feel good about myself so I put other people down. I gossip about them. It includes the greed to download music and movies that aren't mine without any thought to who I'm robbing. He says we're under the power of sin. That's quite strong. But I think it's true, isn't it? Just reflect for a minute. How many times have you decided that today will be a day where, whatever, you're going to be kind to the people around you? You're going to tell the truth all day. Have you ever done that? You wake up in the morning and say, today I'm going to do it. Did you? No. I haven't got through a day being what I know I want to be. But was I forced to sin? Was I forced to do evil? When I told the lie, was there somebody standing over me saying, unless you tell the lie, Tim, you're going to get shot? No. When I told the lie... I freely chose. I wanted to do it. I didn't want to do it, but I did want to do it. it that's slavery, isn't it? That's under the power of something. But it's, under a, it's a voluntary slavery. I never do anything I don't want to do. It's all what I want, and I know I'm responsible for it. And that's the diagnosis. I know it's not very pleasant. It doesn't affirm you and pat you on the back and say, there, there, you're a nice person, everything's going to be fine. He doesn't put band-aids over your sores and say, you'll be right tomorrow, just take a Panadol. But I think it's accurate. And that means if it's true, if there is a God to whom you and I are accountable, all of us are facing condemnation. He concludes in verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole whole world held accountable to God. It's a law court scene. Can you imagine it? There's the judge. It's God. There's me. The charges are laid out. The videos are played of what I've done, of every thought that's crossed my mind, every motivation that has moved me to do things. It's the end of history. And it's all there being laid out in front of the court. I'm exposed, naked and ashamed. And he says, all of us will have nothing to say. There's no excuses we can offer. There's no justification we can give. Under the scrutiny of God, the God who created me, the God who sustained my life, gave me all that I am, the God whose existence I've suppressed because I wanted to do my own thing, will just shut up. Therefore, he says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law, by what we do. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And God... He's angry. You surprised at that, an angry God? What do you imagine God is feeling like? As God looks down on our planet and sees what's happening in Syria at the moment, people being murdered and raped and taken into slavery, both sides using the excuse to get rid of their enemies, dropping bombs. Do you think God's smiling, saying, great, I'm glad some of you are having fun? I doubt it. I can't imagine God being like that. What do you think God is feeling as he looks into our own homes and our own hearts and he sees the way we treat our siblings and each other? As God looks into our imaginations and sees what we'd like to do if we had the guts, do you think he's smiling, saying, Ah, boys will be boys. That looks like fun. No. He cares about the victims. He cares deeply. And because he cares, he's angry. And that's the ultimate issue, the prognosis we all face. 
I know you face many issues. You've got assignments to do. You've got to find parking for your car. That's a hassle, isn't it? Well, this is just as real as those issues, but far, far more significant. And what won't work? Well, religions generally recognise some elements of that reality. But what are their solutions? Well, the solutions of religions are either try harder or experience something better. Try harder. Have the discipline to overcome your weaknesses, whether that's the ascetic training of Buddhism or the five pillars of Islam, your confession of Allah, your five five times a day prayers, your almsgiving, your fasting, your pilgrimage. They just keep saying, come on, try harder. You can do it. You can overcome your problem. Or they say, have an experience that will inspire you to do better. Come and meditate. Do yoga. Experience enlightenment. Get baptised, circumcised, or do your bar mitzvah, or whatever it is, wash in a sacred river. And Well, I think they're just band-aids, aren't they? It's, that's putting a band-aid saying, take a Panadol. I hope cancer goes away. Commendable, maybe. But such exhortations can't solve our problem. They may reduce evil a little bit, but they don't eliminate it. They don't undo what's already been done. It's sort of wishful thinking, isn't it? We're prone to this sort of wishful thinking of, and maybe my, my good works can make up for my bad works. You ever thought that way? You know, maybe just God puts our, our lives on a scale, and if, if there's some in the good side and some in the bad side, if it just tips over the right side, we should be okay. Now just think about that for a minute. Imagine you're charged with murder. You go to court, the evidence presented, is clear you murdered somebody. And then you say to the judge, oh, yeah, yeah, I murdered that person, but last week I helped three little old ladies across the street. Surely that means it's all okay. Do you think the judge would be persuaded? Would you be persuaded? You've got to be joking, don't you? If, if you've done it, all the good works you do can't undo that, can't make it nothing, can't bring the victims of that crime to satisfaction. Well, sometimes we think maybe God grades on a curve. That's what uni does, doesn't it? Grades on a curve. <laughs> and you've got this really bizarre thing where, if you're an engineer, you're trying to hit 51%. That's efficiency. That's, that, that's, that's perfect engineering. But it's only 1%, 1.5% to be 495 and you fail. You think, I, I just could be on the right side of the curve. Maybe God's like that. He sort of grades on a curve. And then you think, that's pretty stupid, isn't it? As if my eternal destiny will depend on... Sort of one little time, I, I should have gone the other way, but I did it wrong, I got 49.5%. Uh-oh, that's eternity gone. Is God actually like that? No, uni might work like that. But God is much more fair. God is righteous in his assessment. And his standards are 100%. Ben talked about this last week, but it, it's true, isn't it? And everything that matters, the standards are 100%, isn't it? Imagine the water authority rings you up and says... For 99.9% of the time, the water coming out of your taps will be perfectly safe to drink, but 0.1% of the time, it'll kill you. You say, great, they're doing a fantastic job. Don't think so. You say 100% is what's needed, isn't it? It's what's right. That's what we, we need, and that's what God says. He doesn't tolerate 50%. He doesn't tolerate 49%. No, he rightly stands for absolute goodness. And so there is a curve, that's right, that we are different, but all of us are on the fail side. Every single one of us. And that means the solution can't come from us. It won't come from us or from religion. We need God to do something about it. That's next week. Come back next week. The solution, what God does about it. The next verse starts 
with a terrific word. It starts with the word but. And the word but, I think, is actually the, it's the best word in the English language. It's the most powerful word in the English language. Here's the diagnosis, but. It's like my doctor saying, you've got cancer, it's going to kill you, but I've got a solution. Come back next week, that's what we're going to look at. Now, how do you feel? This pictures us as silenced before God. I've got nothing to say. Guilty as proved. I don't know whether you're feeling like that. Is it real? I'm persuaded it is. That's you. That's me. That's everyone in this room. I don't know you personally. I can't point to things in your life for many of you. But you know yourself. And I think if you look at your own heart, this diagnosis is right, isn't it? not simple. There's no easy solution. But it's on the money. If you're not persuaded, I'd love to talk with you more. If you are persuaded, what are you going to do? Well, obviously, come back next week, find out about the solution. You could read ahead, though. Nothing to stop you. Get a Bible. You'll find it online if you can't find it anywhere else. Just read what the next paragraph says. See what God has done to solve our situation. What's his solution? to our diagnosis. I'll hand back to Steph. Because I think... No, th- sorry, there is time for questions, actually. Yeah. Good. A couple minutes for questions. Yeah. Uh, there's a, well, you mentioned about religious pluralism. You yes. You said that uh, the religious pluralists are, at the same time, they are also they kind of dictate their own assumption that people have limited knowledge about the world, which I do know this argument, but I wonder... In this case, how would anybody be sure that they're right? Thank you. That's a very helpful question. The question is, um, I'll put it in my words, I criticise the religious pluralists for assuming that they know what's right when they say everyone everyone doesn't know what's right. So how can we ever know what's right? Is that sort of your question? Yeah. Yeah. a couple of things uh, to say to that, and, and uh, some of the other talks that are on will we'll delve into that a little bit more. Um, first thing to say is, the fact that we don't know everything doesn't mean we can't know some things truly. Uh, by examination, by thinking hard, but also by revelation. Somebody outside telling us what is true. Yeah, we, we need to weigh that up because there are lots of claims to revelation. Um, and it'll always be true, I think, that uh, I may find out some information in the future that changes my convictions. But actually, all of us have to. We can't avoid trying to work out what is true and living by that. So let me give you one example. It's perfectly possible, as far as I can tell, that everything you think you're experiencing at the moment is just a dream. Okay? Very hard to prove that's not true. Now, are any of you living as if that's the case in your dream? I presume not. That is, I assume most of you think there's enough evidence that this is reality, that the, the piece of food I eat, I'm actually eating, it's changing things in me in, in the real physical world. Because there is lots of evidence for that. You can't rule out every other possibility. But most of us work... But I'll, I'll talk about philosophically. Most of us work by certitude, not certainty. There's actually almost nothing you can be absolutely certain of, 100%. 
But most of us work on this, uh, this idea, I think all of us do, that if I've got enough information that I can have confidence in, it, it, doesn't, solve, it, it doesn't answer every question, it doesn't give me certainty, but it's enough to give me certitude, that is to live as if that's true. And uh, I think uh, I want to encourage all of us to work towards that. There's a humility in it. I don't know everything. But there's also an unavoidable reality to it. I do need to live somehow. I do need to work out from the information I get, the experience, the reading, what is real. And I want to encourage you to do that. Um, and I'm convinced, and I, want to, I hope you will come to share the conviction, that God and what he says about us and the solution he offers is not just a nice idea, it's real. It's true. That's a start of an answer. Thank you.